This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is March 15th, and the market is went up a bit. Dow Jones up 174 points. Uh, we saw volatility decline by over 3%. 10-year Treasury remained mostly unchanged, ending the day at 1.607%. Um, and yeah, that's that's pretty much what we're looking at. Grant, anything we should mention? Uh, for all the GameStop lovers and followers like yourself, Drew, we did see that the stocks were halted on Monday uh, today as shares finished the day down about 16%. So big jump there. <laughs> Nothing new as we see the speculative trade of, of GameStop move up and down. Yeah, uh, we, we, we should mention on Wednesday, Roblox had its IPO. Uh, started trading at around you know sixty nine fifty a share. Uh, it's been up around seventy two, uh, but I mean its first session was you know just a draw dropping dropping thirty eight billion dollar market cap. Um, let, let's talk about Roblox a little bit and what you know has led it to have such a lofty valuation. Well, it's really the technology because it is a company that is focusing on the building blocks of what's a metaverse. Uh, so users can create digital worlds as they see fit. So we can both uh, use virtual reality software or, or those um, funny goggles that you see people wearing. Uh, they, they say the people when they wear and they look like members of Daft Punk, which I always think is, is a good way to describe it. But really, it's... So people can create a digital world so they can meet up and, and say we're sitting in Montana right now, but we could be having a coffee in Paris. Uh, and so really one of the big things to note about the company is, though, that it's still losing money, even though we did see uh, 2020 be a big uh, fuel for video game companies because of the pandemic, uh, but they're still losing money. Also, one thing to mention on the company, company as I did just mention, they are really... Uh, uh, they're coupled with uh, augmented reality software and virtual reality software. So in order to be able to create a digital world, you need to uh, have access to that technology. So we are seeing improvement in that space, but the headsets today are, are very clunky. No one's going to wear them for an extended period of time. And then also they are quite expensive. So in, in order for, I think, this company to really uh, continue to uh, or turn a profit is those VR, AR technologies need to be more reasonably priced and, and better technology. Right. That's kind of the big risk for guys like Roblox. I mean, if you have a Facebook or an Apple that ends up controlling, you know, the AR and VR platforms, um, then at the end of the day, they're going to end up paying a cut. Um, so that's something to consider. But right now, you know, as base users of 31 million people a day, um, and, you know, there's there's a lot of development, obviously, going on into creating a metaverse. So so companies, um, you know, like like Roblox are going to be uh, bus, uh, you know, like they're going to be uplifted by a lot of the developments we're seeing. And that is the future of video games. Right. So a lot of the companies that are big epic games and even Microsoft has a, has a headset today. So we will continue to see technology advance, and that will be good, but they are dependent on the technology advancement. 
we should mention that we're seeing a lot of states lift COVID restrictions. Definitely you had Greg Abbott in Texas open up everything uh, 100%. Um, but then you see, you know, Texas, Maryland, Mississippi, Connecticut, Arizona, um, Wyoming, a lot of them are opening in slightly different, uh, you know, iterations. Uh, you're also seeing places like New York City and New Jersey. Their restaurants are going from 35% capacity to half capacity beginning March 19th. Wyoming is a good one. Another example, state bars, restaurants, theaters, gyms are allowed to resume normal operations. Here in Montana, we're seeing moves that way as well. Uh, the, the daily average of cases is roughly just below 60,000 uh, last week. So there was a sharp drop compared to January. We were seeing over 250,000 daily cases, uh, and that's according to John Hopkins University. Continuing to see the vaccine per day increase, and I think we'll continue to see states begin to relax a, a lot of um their COVID restrictions in terms of masks. CDC continues to to issue new guidelines, but it seems like the reopening uh, is occurring here in the spring. Yeah, there's still, you know, high number of infections. Uh, obviously, there's concern about the uh, B117 variant, uh, which is the strand that was found in the United Kingdom. There might be something coming out of New York as well new one yeah but i mean overall like you said vaccinations have gone up substantially and the plateau that we had is even beginning to see decreases across the board as well so and one thing we did talk about last week is the additional stimulus bill the 1.9 trillion that passed uh, i guess over the weekend people were beginning to start seeing checks and checks were going to start going out but what's next coming out of Washington and uh, in Washington, D.C. is really what Joe Biden has promised is the infrastructure bill. Uh, it seems like he wants to have a, a pitched during his campaign, a two trillion dollar plan that was achieved through carbon free power by 2035. And he's really hoping to create millions of jobs, union jobs and uh, become green more green uh, infrastructure. So, Drew, what is your take on the infrastructure bill? What's going to be the biggest hurdle for that to get passed? Well, it depends on what they all want to put in it. Um, one thing is there's obviously talks of having a federal jobs guarantee within the infrastructure bill. I think that would be a, a, a gigantic hurdle. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, yes, there are going to be things that, you know, are going to face some political realities. Um Obviously, there's discussions on, you know, how you're going to pay for it. At the end of the day, it's probably going to be a combination of uh, municipal bond sales, um, higher taxes uh, and, you know, uh, payments and tax credits. Uh, I mean, of course, when we look at when you're building infrastructure, that's improvements on the asset side of the balance sheet. So when you're looking at things that create growth, uh, and you're worried about the debt to GDP ratio. I mean, shoring up transit, shoring up energy sector, shoring up highways, shoring up water, all these things uh, can really lead to, you know, a significant spike in, in GDP and, uh, you know, better supply lines and, and everything else, too. So that's one way to consider is 
you know, growth is going to be a byproduct of anything this large. Guaranteed employment, I think, is going to be a non-starter for for a lot of senators. So I, I don't even think that should be a, a brought to the negotiation table. One big thing also is is if we're trying to think about union and then also the uh, Green Party or, or the folks that are more looking for carbon neutral infrastructure, those are usually on opposite sides. We saw the uh, gas pipeline in the Dakotas that got shut down. Union union uh, laborers were not happy about that, but then we had environmentalists who were. So I think getting those two parties to the table and agreeing on something is also going to have to be uh, a big lift for Joe Biden and his team. Yeah, I mean, they they, they can be on the opposite sides, but I, I don't think they have to be. Uh, I mean, one of the states that could benefit the most from this is West Virginia. Uh, of course, it's, you know, it's second largest in coal but when you're looking at you know what what the Appalachians have, uh, and you're looking at the amount of white water and everything, there, there's tons of hydroelectric potential. There's tons of wind potential. Uh, you know th- that you know the Appalachians in the Mid Atlantic could really benefit from from a bill like this. Uh, and a lot of those areas are obviously um, the hardest pressed economically. Uh, you know. When, you, when you're looking at what's gone on in manufacturing and what's gone on in extraction industries like coal. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, but like, I, I, I do think it's a conversation of broader industrial policy. I think, you know, when you look at the 1970s, we obviously had a much stronger manufacturing base. Uh, I mean, we've seen, you know, output was growing, but at the same time, there's just less and less manufacturing jobs domiciled in the United States. Uh, and I, I do think, you know, that's that's definitely something to consider as we, you know, shore up our infrastructure policy. We got to be thinking about industrial policy as well. Probably going to be one of the biggest challenges. We did see Biden campaign on the Build Back Better blueprint, which calls on $300 billion in new federal investment and research programs and $400 billion in federal government uh, for American-made goods with tax incentives and credit facilities to help manufacturers with domestic plans and really help bring back supply chains, really focusing around the semiconductor batteries and strategic minerals. Uh, and we saw on February 24th, Joe Biden signed an executive order launching a review of our supply chains of that. Uh, when we're competing against China on those, we're a little bit behind because creating these semiconductor manufacturing plants is a huge investment of capital, but then also they take time. Uh, and then also we saw the White House ask for Taiwan, who is the world leading chip producer for help. Um, admitting there isn't really a short-term fix for for re-augmenting our supply chains. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. How we are able to bring back and have some domestic supply chains for these critical indust- industrial plants is going to be important. Yeah. I mean, the issue with China, you know, and there's economists that say, say as much as that, it's not so much throwing tariffs at them, but it's just a matter of out-inventing them and out-building them, which is a remarkably hard task uh, and something we have really put on the back burner. I mean, the most recent airport that we have is uh, Denver, and that was built in 1995. So we have employees in our office now who are younger than our most modern 
airport. So that, that's definitely something something to consider. Uh, when we're looking at batteries, semiconductors, I mean, even stuff like LED bulbs, you got to find ways to make them stateside or make them more cost effective. And we did see to change gears here on Wednesday, the Labor Department said the consumer price index increased by 0.4% last month after rising by 03 in January. Uh, through 12 months through February, the CPI gained 1.7% largest rise since February 2020. A big reason why was because of the um, increase in the cost of gasoline. Uh, it was a big riser uh, that could be explained by what happened in Texas with the cold spell where we had a shutdown, an oil refinery shutdown, and then also we had the attacks on Saudi Ramco, which is drive the, the gasoline prices. They increased by 6.4%. Overall, we are seeing prices rise, and this could could be uh, a sign of higher inflation to come for the rest of the year. I mean, we, we talked about this last week, but I mean, we're going to have to deal with the reopening and that's going to be a short term, term blip. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you're looking at some analysis, uh, especially when we're looking at the 10 year. You got uh, ING senior rate strategist saying that it could hit. 2% by the end of the year, but then you might see a second quarter um, bump as well. So, And when we're thinking about the 10-year over the past six weeks, uh, the 10-year has risen from 1.07 to a high of 1.64 last Friday. Today, as you mentioned, is about 1.6. So we are seeing that the 10-year continue to grow. I've even seen estimates as high of 3%. Uh, which would be a 200 basis point jump from where it ended the year in 2020. Uh, and that's really important because that's what influences a lot of other loans as well as the mortgage rates. And we have seen the, the mortgage refinancing and, and first-time homeowners through the roof. Mm -hmm. One thing to kind of consider, though, is uh, you know Bank of America did a survey. They interviewed 3,000 people on how they'd spend the new stimulus check uh, and when you're looking at the lowest income category, even including the, I should say, the lowest income category, you had 53% of people say they plan to either save or pay off debts um, or invest. But, you know, when you're talking about whether you're going to see an influx of spending, uh, at least in terms of um, these, these survey respondents, that, that it doesn't indicate it, right? So, I mean, Americans, obviously, we know we're saddled by numerous debt, college debt, household debt. Uh, and I think people are going to use this as they, as we've seen with the other checks, as an opportunity to uh, pay some of that down. And if we think about the checks uh, in transition, because there was checks paid to about 1.1 billion people who received cash payments from mid-March to mid-June. Uh, a lot of it in response to COVID-19 as there was heavy restrictions on societies uh, and, and massive layoffs. Uh, we saw these in residents in Hong Kong, Kenya, Brazil, here in the United States, South Korea. And this may spark a bigger conversation about universal basic income. There has been uh, a lot of calls that universal basic income increases freeloading uh, and persistence high rates of joblessness. We That is based on what people have seen in Europe, um, and that caused benefits to, to contract a little bit. Drew, 
has the past year of stimulus checks and direct payments opened the conversation for basically universal income? And where do you see it going from here? Yeah, I, I, I think it certainly has. Um, one, this this isn't a new idea. It's new in the sense that it seems all of a sudden somewhat politically feasible. And it's new in the sense that it's a major topic amongst pundits and representatives alike. But, I mean, the idea is as old as, I mean, Thomas Paine, you're looking back in the 1700s, uh, was for it, right? Uh, Milton Freeman, the very libertarian economist, was for it. You had Dr. Um, Martin Luther King was for it uh, and spoke briefly about it uh, towards the end of his life um, with, the, with the Poor People's Campaign. So, yes, uh, it's been around a lot, but in terms of implementation, um, you know, it, it, it's obviously not widespread. Uh, in the United States, one of the most common uh, instances of it is the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend, um, which, you know, they're using oil revenue and it's the payments typically 1000 to 2000 annually. So looks a lot like our stimulus checks we've been uh, delving out um, currently, uh, which are obviously very popular. Uh, who would have thought that people would like getting a check? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I do think it's made it more realistic. There's been no shortage of studies on small uh, small scales. Uh, when you're looking at Finland, they found that you know the evidence shows that it has a good effect on educational attainment and med, um, mental physical health and, and reducing poverty. Uh, but then you also haven't seen a lot of people going on the unemployment doles. But you know, it's, the number is very important because. Uh, there's a difference between, you know, trying to make it something that matches unemployment or something that simply might be more utopian, right? So for somebody who loses a job, it's not going to be enough. Uh, for somebody who's still in a job, it might be slightly uh, too much. So at the end of the day, I, I do think that people are going to position it as a citizen dividend. Uh, it's not going to cure or alleviate all the problems we have, especially when we're looking at automation, uh, but it's it's you know the, the the goal is to make life and this net effect a little bit better. Yeah, and that study came out from the Basic Income Lab at Stanford, and they did sixteen basic income studies uh, from two thousand and nine to two thousand nineteen, and a couple of big ones were, as you mentioned, the education. But I, I think a really important one is the physical and mental health. If you're getting a couple hundred bucks from the government each month, that could be your grocery bill, that could help you with rent. Uh, that should reduce a lot of the stresses that, that people have around some basic human needs. But the biggest question, and we mentioned this in the uh, in the infrastructure bill, is where is this money going to pay, pay for? Because we saw that uh, Andrew Yang, when he was campaigning, that his cost for his his uh, was it the freedom dividend I believe uh, would cost about fourteen percent of GDP a year so that's a pretty hefty price tag um, so where is that going to come from he did mention that could be from uh, reducing some of the other programs that we have associated with it but in terms of where the money is going to come from I, I think that that is going to be the biggest hurdle as we begin to have more conversations about universal basic income. Yeah, well, I mean, arguments that guys like Andrew Yang always make is, look, um, you know, the United States has about a quarter of the world's prison population. 
So we're a massively incarcerated country. Uh, does something like this dramatically you know, help out reduce crime, uh, especially economic crime? And what does that mean in terms of housing a person for, you know, might cost the state between 30 grand and, and 50 some odd grand a year. But so that's something you got to consider. Uh, you also got to consider whatever's the greater of, at least when we're talking about Andrew Yang's plan. So if you're getting Social Security, you can either opt in or opt out. So you're not getting Social Security benefits. And then on top of it, you know, you'd be getting uh, your your $1,000 check, check a month. I mean, of course, that's only one uh, proposal out there. It just happens to be the most popular proposal uh, because he's the guy who really pioneered it into the mainstream, I'd say, you know, in the last couple of years. But. And he is running for mayor of New York. So if he gets elected that we could see a smaller version of some universal basic income if he is elected uh, as the mayor. Yeah. I mean, and, um, you know, this is obviously we've kind of gotten a little bit wonky on this, but what what at the end of the day, I guess my big takeaway is I think that the economic downturn and also COVID-19 and the uh, application of the checks has allowed policies like this to become mainstream. Um, so you so you have to weigh the economic benefits and, and cons of, of, you know, of, of some of these proposals. And with that, Grant, uh, anything else we should be talking about? Well, I'd be on the lookout for the Fed's meeting uh, this week. It concludes on Wednesday. I think we're going to see market moves if he says nothing or if he says a lot. Really, he's going to have Jerome Powell, that is, is going to have to field some questions and have responses to the low interest rate policies and the asset purchases that we see. Uh, really because we're seeing the 10-year treasury grow, as we mentioned earlier on the podcast today. That could be a signal of either inflation or stronger economic growth, either one. The Fed is probably going to have to field some questions about uh, responding to that. Um, But what he says is going to impact already a volatile bond market market and could drive stocks up, um, especially growth stocks if we see bond yields begin to rise. What about you, Drew? Yeah, uh, I mean, you have a company, Digital Ocean, uh, when you're looking at cloud computing, who's in the process of having an IPO. Um, I mean, tech IPOs are always something to obviously, you know, be on the lookout for. Um, And, you know, it's one of the more exciting things, I think, uh, that's been happening over the last few years. Um, So, yes, I think that's uh, a big thing. Um, And then I also just... We'll be on the lookout for if the vaccine rollout continues at the clip it's been um, has been going and and how much progress we can make to a realistic, uh, you know, May 1st, first timeline. But everybody uh, with that, uh, thank you for liking. Thank you for subscribing. And we'll talk to you next week. We're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the content. 
The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.